Good morning, friends. I hope you have a wonderful weekend celebration. It is Memorial Day, where we have a chance to remember those people who sacrificed their lives so that we might have freedom. It's also known in many churches as Trinity Sunday, and I'm going to talk about that today. And my message title is Holy, 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 and this comes from Isaiah chapter 6. Let me start by asking, would you consider it a compliment if someone called you holy? Well, the answer is, it depends on who that someone is, I'm sure. After all, the word holy is used in many different ways by different people. If a person is considered excessively religious, he's called a holy roller or a holy Joe or holier than thou. The truth is, most of us have mixed feelings about being called holy. It could be a compliment Or it could be an insult, depending on the person talking. So let me try another question. Are you a holy person? Again, most of us have mixed feelings. I imagine that there are very few of us who would use the word holy to describe ourselves. We probably feel more comfortable using words like loving or trustworthy or joyful. The truth is the word holy has negative connotations even to many Christians. We're not sure what it means, so we rarely use it to describe other people. It's often used in an insulting way, so we feel vaguely uncomfortable applying it to ourselves. And yet, God said, be holy as I am holy. Now, before we can understand what it means to be holy, we must understand what it means to say that God is holy. In many ways, holiness is God's central attribute. One writer defined it this way, holiness is that which makes God, God. Now, how important is it? I mean, holiness is the only attribute of God mentioned in triplicate. Two times the Bible tells us that God is holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6, 3 and Revelation 4, 8. I mean, think about that for a moment. If God says something about his character once, that's enough to settle it. When he says it twice, that's emphasis. But when he says it three times, it's of supreme importance. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or justice, 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 but it does say that he is holy, holy, holy. So let's begin by working toward a definition. Now, I agree with those writers who say that holiness is the most difficult attribute to define because it deals with the very essence of God's character. Defining holiness is like, well, like defining God. It can't be done completely. We can describe holiness and find ample illustrations of it, but we can't define it entirely. After all, that's what makes God, God. Well, first of all, I want to tell you that the word means to be set apart. A thing is holy if it is set apart for special use. I mean, other words you might use are words like distinctive or different. Now, applied to God, holiness is that characteristic that sets him apart from his creation. And there are many verses that speak of God being on high or reigning, in his holy temple, sitting on his throne. And these verses all picture God as separate from creation and reigning over it. Now we can go a step further and say that anything that is holy is that which is set apart from God. Now we call the Bible the Holy Bible because it contains the Word of God. We call Israel the Holy Land because it is the land he chose for his own people. The angels are holy angels because they belong to God. The Sabbath day is holy because he set it apart for himself. And when Moses stood before the burning bush, he was to take off his sandals because he was standing on what? Holy ground. Ground that God set apart for himself. 
Well, second, the word holy also means utterly pure or separated from sin. Now, the Bible tells us God hates sins, or that he cannot sin, nor will he tempt others to sin. God is so pure that he cannot tolerate sin in any form in his presence. One day he's going to destroy sin forever, and that leads to an important implication. It's this, holiness and sin cannot coexist. If you want to be holy as God is holy, you need to adopt his attitude towards sin. I mean, if you coddle sin or excuse it or dabble in it, you cannot be holy as he is holy. Now, in the remainder of this message, I want us to consider what God's holiness means for you and for me. And we're going to look at three different episodes from the scripture where mortal men encountered a holy God. And from these three stories, I think we can glean some crucial spiritual truth for ourselves. And the first episode or story comes from the life of the prophet Isaiah, our text for the day. It takes place early in his ministry. It says, starts out by saying, in the year King Uzziah died. Now, that note is important because Uzziah was one of the best kings Judah ever had. He had a heart for God, unlike many of his predecessors and many of his successors. When he died, the golden age in Israel's history was ending. I mean, would the people continue to walk with God or would they return to idolatry? And in that fateful moment, Isaiah came face to face with the living God. In fact, we can summarize his experience with four words. The first word is majesty. You read that in verses 1 and 2. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. The second word is found in verses 3 and 4. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. See, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. The third word would be confession, and you read that in verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the angels flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And that leads us to the fourth word, cleansing, in verse 6 and 7. It says, with it, he, that's the angel, touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, friends, of all the things we might say about this magnificent passage, let's concentrate on one central truth. When Isaiah saw the Lord, he also saw himself. That's why he cried out, woe is me. I mean, until then, Isaiah didn't look so bad. I mean, doubtless he was far more moral than his contemporaries. Compared to them, he looked clean. Compared to God, he looked filthy. So it is that whenever we see God for who he is, we will see then ourselves for who we really are. Holiness leads to confession and repentance. And if you haven't cried out, I'm a man of unclean lips lately, it might just indicate that you've not really seen the king lately. See, it's a simple fact that what happened to Isaiah happens to anyone who catches a glimpse of God. The closer you come to God, the more you will recognize your own sinfulness. Reginald Haber captured this perfectly when he wrote, you know this song, Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy, there is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love, and purity. Now someone has said that the first principle of usefulness is to understand that you are not worthy to be used. 
That's what happened to Isaiah. He saw himself and when he saw the Lord, and that led to confession, repentance, and cleansing. Now, to get back to episode 2, story 2, we need to go back up about 700 years earlier to Exodus chapter 3 to the hot sands of the Sinai Desert. Now, there a man named Moses is about to meet God for the first time. He's out tending sheep. A most extraordinary event takes place. A bush kind of starts on fire, but it's not consumed. And kind of fascinated by the sight, he walks closer to investigate. And in verses 4 and 5, he hears the voice of God. Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Friends, that's when the Lord revealed himself to Moses. Now, let me paraphrase it. Moses, do you remember how I revealed myself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? You heard those stories all your life. I am the same God who talked with them hundreds of years ago, just as I used them to accomplish great things. I have an even bigger job for you in mind. Are you ready to listen to what I have to say? Now, I don't know how you would respond, but I think you might do it exactly as Moses did. Verse 6 says, he hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. One commentator says that God told Moses to take off his shoes to remind him of the infinite distance between God and man. He can only come so close and no closer. Well, this then is kind of our second response to God's holiness, and that is deep respect for who God is. I can think of at least one objection to what I just said. Since this event happened in the Old Testament, and since we are not under the law but under grace, isn't this whole episode rather irrelevant to us? Well, the answer is no. I do agree that in Christ Jesus we have been invited to come boldly into God's presence. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. We're no longer kept at arm's length but are now welcomed into the throne room of the universe. You might want to take a look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. However, that same book warns us not to take God lightly, but to worship him acceptably with, quote, reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's Hebrews 12, 29. Some Christians have mistakenly, have mistaken access with informality and substituted flippancy for familiarity. Yes, we are to call God Father, that might, but that still means treating him with the respect that he deserves. Now, here's episode 3 or story 3. It comes from 2 Samuel 6. It's one of the strangest passages in all the Bible. And here we're going to run the clock ahead about 450 years from Moses. David had been crowned king of Israel, just conquered Jerusalem. All that remains for him is to have the Ark of the Covenant transported from the house of Abinadad to the temple or to the tabernacle in Jerusalem. Now, you see, the ark had been absent from the tabernacle for nearly 20 years. The Philistines captured it, but later gave it back to the Israelites. And David wanted it back in the capital because it represented the presence of God with his people. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, indicating that the sins of the people had been atoned for through sacrificial blood. And so it is that David orders the ark to be taken back to Jerusalem, and thousands of people joined in a great celebration. He had the ark put on a cart pulled by a team of oxen. The two sons of Abinadad, 
uh, walked next to the ark to steady it, lest it fall to the ground. And we pick up the story in verses 6 and 7. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Wow. But friends, we need to understand several facts for this story to make sense. Fact number one, although David meant well, he did not obey the Lord's command. Yes, God did want the ark back in Jerusalem, but he'd given specific instructions that it be transported by priests who carried it by means of long poles inserted through rings that were attached to the ark. If David had followed God's plan, the ark would have been safe, but because he substituted his own plan, Uzzah died. Here's fact number two. Uzzah probably meant well, too. After all, if you were walking beside the ark and it began to tip, what would you do? You'd probably put your hand out and straighten it, wouldn't you? And that would be the last thing you'd ever do. Uzzah knew that no human was ever to touch the ark of the covenant because it was holy. Uzzah not only disobeyed God, he also disrespected the Lord's command. Now, David's reaction to all of this was understandable. At first he was very angry, and then he was afraid. Verse 9, it goes on and says, If God's going to start killing people for stuff like that, we're all going to be dead soon. Well, this story teaches us that good motives are not enough. Enthusiasm must be accompanied by obedience. It's not enough to mean well. We've got to do the right thing. And that would be the third response to God's holiness, and that's fear lest we would displease the Lord. Now let me wrap up this message with two practical applications. What will it mean if we take begin to take God's holiness seriously? Well, first of all, when we grasp God's holiness, we'll be moved to wholehearted worship. That's what happened to Isaiah when he saw a vision of God. That's what happened to Job when the Lord finished his interrogation. That's what happened to the 24 elders in heaven as they came before the throne. Holiness leads to worship. The good news is you can worship God anywhere. And in our three examples today, men worshiped in the temple, the desert, and the road to Jerusalem. And I agree with everyone who says you don't have to go to church to worship God. That's true, and lots of people who go to church don't worship anyway. They come by force of habit or to see their friends. or I mean, worship is the last thing on their minds. Yeah, friends, you can worship anytime, anywhere if you catch a glimpse of God's holiness. When you see God, you're going to worship no matter where you are. That's the good news. But the bad news is as bad as the good news is good. And here it is. Although you can worship God anywhere, you cannot worship him half-heartedly. There's no such thing as half-hearted worship. Well, there's, I know there's religious routine and repetitive ritual. But true worship grips the mind, the heart, and the soul. Now, maybe kind of blunt here, because sometimes I wonder why so many church members seem apathetic about their faith. I think it's because our churches are filled with theoretical Christians and, well, practical atheists. They give lip service to God, but live as if he doesn't exist. They're apathetic because God bores them. But as Ravi Zacharias once pointed out, when man is bored with God, even heaven does not have a better alternative. During the dark days of World War II, William Temple, who was then the Archbishop of Canterbury in a radio address to the people of England, declared, 
This world can be saved from political chaos and collapse by one thing only, and that is worship. Now, does that sound preposterous? I mean, listen to Temple's definition of worship. Quote, to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, to devote the will to the purpose of God. Now, friends, if that is what worship really is, perhaps the archbishop was correct. Only worship can save us. And let's be honest, we will never worship as long as we are bored with God. And yes, God will bore us until we get a glimpse of his holiness. Here's the second application. When God's holiness grips us, we will respond with wholehearted obedience. That kind of follows naturally, doesn't it? Let me just suggest what that wholehearted obedience would look like. I mean, there will be new respect for God, new respect for his name, new zeal to please him. New attention to the details of life, new fear of God's judgment, and new love for God's people, a new desire for God's word, a new hatred for sin, new humility, new fear of God in the congregation, new emphasis on the cross of Jesus, a new desire to serve the Lord, a new joy in worship, a new zeal for prayer, a new desire to tell others about the Lord, new reverence for life itself. But what else will happen? when we once again elevate God's holiness to his proper position? I think there'll be less talk about self-esteem and more talk about repentance. Less concern about the White House and more concern for God's house. Fewer flippant jokes and more serious worship. Less emphasis on relevance and more emphasis on faithfulness. Less therapy from the pulpit, more preaching on the cross of Jesus. Less neglect of church discipline. Less concerned about what the world thinks and more concerned about what God thinks. Here then are seven benefits of holiness in the life of a believer. At least from my perspective. I think that God's holiness, one, exposes our sin. Two, shatters our pride. Three, awakens our conscience. Four, redirects our will. Five, stirs our emotions. Six, prompts our obedience. And seven, ignites our worship. Because God's holiness is his central attribute, his holiness is the central issue of the Christian life. That's why 1 Peter 1.16 says, Be holy because I am holy. Friends, when God's holiness becomes a reality to us, we will never, ever be the same again. Now, I began this message by remarking that God's holiness is that which makes God, God. And in a sense, our holiness is what makes us truly Christian. To speak of an unholy Christian is ultimately an oxymoron. Holiness is the mark of a child of God. We're to be holy because we have been partakers of his divine nature. To be holy means that in every aspect of your life, you are so aware of God's presence that you are distinctively Christian. One other bit of good news and I'm done. It's not impossible to be holy, even in this holy world. You see, Jesus did the hard part when he died on the cross. The Holy Spirit lives within us. God even calls you holy in Christ Jesus. Do you want to be holy? Then live up to what you already are. Holiness is natural for the child of God. So let me ask you again. Would you consider it a compliment if someone called you a holy person? Consider this. 
That's the highest compliment God could ever give you. Holy Father, open ourselves to see ourselves as you see us. We pray to be holy as you are holy and to live up to what we already are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Until next time, friends, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion.